Hello, and welcome to Matters of Engagement, a podcast exploring the complex world of patient engagement and partnership. I'm Jennifer Johannesson. And I'm Emily Nicholas Angle. In our last episode, we heard from Julia Abelson, who gave us a perspective on evaluation as a researcher of patient engagement and as a researcher who engages patients. This time around, we wanted to get an organizational perspective. So for this episode, we're going behind the scenes of Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital, an internationally renowned inpatient and outpatient facility, which is well known for its client and family engagement programs. Its history of including youth and families in decision-making spaces extends as far back as the 1970s, and it now has engagement built into its operating structure. Now, a bit of disclosure here, my son was a longtime client of Holland Bloorview, and I think I was on an advisory committee just once back in the late 90s, and it was for exactly one meeting. I went, I sat, and I left, and that was the extent of it. Things are quite a bit different now. Our guest is Amun Siam. He's the Director of Client and Family Integrated Care at Holland Bloorview. In that role, Amun oversees or supports programs that encompass youth and family engagement in both research and for the hospital, as well as family leadership and peer support. We wanted to talk with Amun about their engagement programs and how they evaluate them, and to know how an organization as large and complex as Holland Bloorview thinks about quality and improvement of engagement. How do they measure it? How do they get feedback? How do they pick and choose what to prioritize? We visited Amun at Holland Bloorview pre-COVID on a typically busy day at the hospital. We spoke with him in the Family Resource Center, an open concept space with books and computers and lounge areas and staff and workstations. In this recording, you'll hear lots of friendly ambient sounds in the background. We started off talking about the trend towards patient engagement in general. It's becoming more commonplace for organizations to talk a lot about their patient engagement strategies. But I think we all agreed that the depth and quality of implementation may vary. There is a lot of talk and a lot of like um, flag waving around it because I think people and organizations know enough to know that that's what they should be saying. And then it shifts like this work for folks who are interested and serious about it because it becomes a bit more like guerrilla warfare, like who actually means it and who, who just knows enough to know the language and tr- key terms they should sprinkle their strap plans and their speeches and their like uh, quality improvement priority setting with. So yeah. That- Holland Bloorview is not one of those organizations. They invest heavily in their patient engagement programs. They actually call it client and family engagement. And they're proud of what they've accomplished. Let's take a quick look at their family leadership program, then we'll carry on with Amun. First, there are the committees. There's the Family Advisory Committee, which advises on hospital service delivery and functions as a resource for hospital leaders. It's what Amun calls a design space, and we'll talk more about that later. Then there's the Youth Advisory Committee, which also gives input, and it provides an opportunity for youth to develop advocacy skills. And there's the Children's Advisory Council, which is a forum for very young clients and their siblings to share their ideas on improving services. And then in a separate area, there's the Research Family Engagement Committee, 
which works with the Bloorview Research Institute to help prioritize research, conduct reviews, and communicate findings of studies and projects. In addition to being involved in committee work, individuals can become family advisors, where they can participate in specific service or quality improvement projects. They can become family mentors, working directly with peer clients and families in a supportive or mentoring role. And they can become family as faculty, which means they're part of an educational and professional development team that participates in clinician training inside and outside of the hospital. There are a lot of moving parts, and a lot of people. There are currently over 150 family leaders in all of these programs. Most are volunteer, with a couple of paid roles reserved specifically for family as faculty. Hall and Bloorview's commitment to engagement didn't spring out of nowhere. Amun notes that it's their unique position as a pediatric rehab facility that keeps the pressure on. They have long-term relationships with clients and families, which means there's a lot at stake. And all parties are heavily invested in that relationship. It's just the reality and uniqueness of pediatric rehabilitation. Uh, the rehab part means that we have long, long, long relationships with these families, right? So age, you know, zero to 19 as an outpatient. Sometimes, like I said, up to six to eight months as an inpatient. We have a lot of time to form a relationship. We have a lot of time to try to instill trust. And I think that always shows itself in the quality of our partnership. And then on the flip side, you mentioned pediatrics. Like, you will not get, um, I think, more fierce advocates than caregivers in a pediatric context, right? Who are often parents for all the reasons you mentioned. And then the intersection of that, I think, is, is a big kind of part of why, why we feel that we're at the level we're at when it comes to partnership with families. With all of these programs to manage, Amun is tasked with ensuring they run effectively with an eye on quality of both process and outcomes. Given that engagement is embedded throughout the organization at virtually all levels, we wanted to get a picture of how he approaches evaluation of their engagement programs. We started with their annual survey. Where we can anonymously like seek feedback from family leaders. Like what's, and really different kinds of feedback. So we can break that down even further. There's like, um, kind of like process measures, right? Where we, where the practices, do the practices make sense? Do the practices meet the goals? So we're trying to redesign a whole clinic and all we did was send you a survey. And that doesn't sound like a very good practice. Like the methodology sucks and doesn't really match our goals, right? There's the experiential piece. Like maybe you felt completely disrespected because the clinicians in the room didn't let you talk. They weren't taking you seriously. Your expertise wasn't valued or even understood as expertise. And then the outcome impact piece, which is, I think, a, the giant question mark we're all still playing with, right? It was interesting to note that we were there to talk about evaluation, yet the very things we imagined that a place like Holland Bloorview would have figured out, outcomes and impact, were still, as Amun says, a giant question mark. We do come back to this later, but at this point we carried on talking about the survey as an evaluation method. Amun says surveys can be helpful, but they're not sufficient for painting a full picture of how things are really going. They also look to their embedded engagement practices, which generate their own ongoing feedback loop. And this has the added benefit of not having to wait for an annual survey to see how they're doing. This might be easier to explain by way of example. Here's Amun talking about the work of their family advisory committee. Every year, our family advisory committee uh, selects two goals. So in addition to, you know, we have our monthly meetings, in addition to every project that will come to the, the Family Advisory Committee for feedback, 
there's two sustained goals with what we call subcommittee work. Every meeting, which is two hours in length, 30 minutes at that meeting is dedicated to some kind of continuity, to driving a goal forward month by month for the entire year. And the expectation is um, it's hard for that to get lost. But not just that, we ask families to help vote on, not even really help, to vote on and determine what those goals are. And then the expectation is if you decide, this is a real example, if you decide that um, you want to work on diversity and representation because you do not see the demographics of Hall and Bloor be represented in this room the you know, last Thursday of the month in the form of family leaders coming together to design things, make big decisions. Families flagged that to us. They said, you're not doing your job. We need you to do better to recruit for diversity. So we are doing that. Like That's a process in and of itself, but we take seriously the challenge that they offer to the, the hospital to do better. So that means partnering with families and taking a year to figure out how we're going to do that. Hall and Bloorview went on to develop a demographic survey, which they matched against existing hospital demographics. This helped them identify gaps in representation and informed how they were going to think about targeting recruitment for better diversity in the family leadership programs. Now, for Amun, this kind of embedded feedback activity is an integral part of evaluation and would not easily be addressed through a survey. If we're relying on surveys, we've already failed. I think that's important and that kind of evaluation that's like systematic and happens every three months or whatever it is, is important. It's really, really important and we have to get that right. But we need to try to invite as much challenge and dissent as possible and not run from that or be scared of that and not try to sanitize family feedback in those meetings, in the everyday of partnering with family leaders, because that's where we get the best feedback. As Amun mentioned, the Family Advisory Committee selects two goals each year to work on. They develop a plan to address whatever they've selected and are given support and resources from the hospital to sustain the work over time. We asked for clarification on how these goals even get to the committee and what sorts of parameters guide their decisions. Amun explained that deciding on scope for the goals isn't exactly a blank slate. There are many things that patients might want that aren't under the control of Hall and Bloorview. So instead, they narrow the scope of what the committee can consider to what is within their control by asking a basic question. What is a pain point for you? That's how food was suggested, actually. It was our uh, inpatient clinical team that said, we're getting a lot of feedback. We're getting a lot of concerns, like formal complaints, and we know the food sucks. That's something that we'd like to bring forward to the Family Advisory Committee. And then that lined up alongside 12 or 14, I can't recall, other suggestions that were suggested by other folks across the hospital community. And family leaders could vote on and choose from those options, but they could also add other ones. If we're doing this in like our respective corners, we know we come together to say, this is what's not working. And then we retreat to our corners where family leaders are on one side and staff and leadership are on another, and we just try to build things separately. That doesn't work either. So the expectation is that alignment, that alignment happens at those advisory committee meetings. Those other broader priorities are brought there. And it's like priority setting. It's a priority setting exercise and the family advisory committee or council will bite off two of those big priorities. This is where conversations can get a little muddy for me. Amun uses a lot of corporate lingo, words like alignment and priority setting. I mean, it's modern business speak that makes sense in context and internally certainly means something specific. But for me anyway, it doesn't reveal much about how these meetings unfold. Earlier, Amun had talked about the family leadership program as a place where pushback happens, where dissent and challenge are invited and worked through. 
Now, having participated in committees where collaboration and alignment are said to take place, we both know that despite the best of intentions, these kinds of meetings aren't necessarily the place where dissent and challenge actually happen. We asked Amun if there are maybe other ways that they get a read on how things are going that might give them a more complete picture in this regard. He agreed it's definitely a challenge, and we talked through some of their approaches, returning again briefly to the survey. Right, so if we're using an annual survey and it's completely anonymized, we're getting like aggregated feedback. So there, there are questions on there that look at those three domains. Like what would the, did the practices match the goals to you? So a process question, the experiential question that I referred to earlier, and then the outcomes question. And that always gives us a sense from the family leader perspective, did they feel like they shaped, the presence of family leaders had a real opportunity and did shape the outcome or had impact in whatever the, the kind of deliverable was of a project, but then we weren't able to map it to specific projects. So if 85% of people said yes, we don't know where the 15% is that we need to work on. Like what projects weren't working and who are the staff leads providing targeted support. So that's what I mean by we need to work on it. And then I'd say the other thing that we do where we actually get better feedback on this or better mapping than the survey is our family partnership specialists are often facilitating, um, they're matching family leaders to a particular, let's say quality improvement project, but then they're in the background facilitating. So they'll help to orient family leaders to the project. This is kind of what the goal is um, from the from this other staff's perspective. This is what they're trying to work on. But they don't just disappear at that point. They're often supporting in the background, both the staff and the family leaders. And by the end, are able to anecdotally understand if family leader feedback was completely omitted from um, you know whatever the deliverable was. And then that's used to support the staff with more targeted education. Um, and that's kind of how more so we're able to understand family leader roles and impact and outcome. Amun is acknowledging limitations of surveys. It's a fine balance, trying to get useful information in a way that's efficient and doesn't overburden the respondents through a lot of written responses or time-consuming interviews. It can also be quite resource-intensive to extract qualitative data and to do the required analysis. So to fill some of these knowledge gaps, Amun describes a kind of peer leadership model where a family partnership specialist is designated as a link between staff and family leaders to facilitate communication, to help everyone get the resources they need, and to ensure family leader input is appropriately incorporated into a given project. If anything is amiss, the specialist can report back so that the right support or intervention can be put in place. That all sounds great and still doesn't quite sound like the system of checks and balances that we were originally talking about, or at least that I was imagining. But in fairness, we may just be looking at things from different perspectives. Like, is the glass half empty or is it half full? Are we focused on complaints or are we focused on improvement? And, you know, we should also acknowledge that Amun's actual job is to support and even promote their engagement programs, both internally and externally. And this carries a whole different set of expectations or assumptions than if we were talking to a researcher. Recalling our conversation with Julia Abelson, she talked about the importance of being clear about the goals for evaluation. And given his role, Amon's focus is more on evaluating with the aim to improve the quality of family engagement. But still, 
Holland Blurview is very involved in research, and so I would assume there is also interest on their part to contribute to the broader understanding of if and how engagement might have impact. Going back to our conversation with Julia, we briefly discussed this idea of tracing, or tracking inputs and outputs to determine the origins and pathways of a decision-making process. This is something I had become interested in as part of some of the research work I'm involved with as well. So we asked Amon if they do any sort of decision tracking or mapping at Hall & Bloorview. Honestly, this might sound like propaganda, but it's not. Um, uh, That's what all <laughs> really, really mean it. But I really, but I mean, really it. mean it genuinely. Uh, I think a, a part of why Part of why we don't is because this is all relationship-based, right? So I'll give you an example of uh, what we track. So we will track all the decision points in a project, right? So we recently replaced, uh, we have horrible, we had horrible kind of like sleeper beds beside the beds in the inpatient units, um, like really uncomfortable. They were, they were actually causing injuries to, to caregivers, like actively causing injuries. So we know we need to change these. Okay, great. We we fundraise. We have we our foundation is nicely secured uh, donor dollars to replace them. But we need to design them because they were actually they looked like good chairs, right? But they were. But we we know that we need to partner with families to design um, chairs that are not going to cause injuries, that are comfortable, that'll help them sleep because we know that sleep is a huge indicator of caregiver participation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we can track all those decision points, right? Right from um, how many chairs are we going to get, which was one of them, to um, what are the fundamental features of the design and family leaders going to the factory in Mississauga to sit down with like the design team there with our vendor and the foundation staff and clinicians on the inpatient unit and other family leaders to design the chairs which family leaders led to the color, to what the rollout and implementation should be, to how are we going to promote these new chairs amongst families. This process Amun is describing, where families are swept up in a collaborative co-design project, it carries a lot of forward momentum and as Amun explains, it has its own vetting and weeding process. Staff will continually observe and ask and listen, get feedback, and then refine or iterate on how they engage families and how they educate and support staff. It's what's known as a continuous quality improvement model, which originated in manufacturing and other industrial sectors and migrated its way outside of the factory in the 1970s. It is now ubiquitous in many sectors, including social services, healthcare, and education. It's defined as a process of constant evaluation, where learning and change happen in incremental and continuous steps rather than all at once. It struck us, though, that this example of the chairs was a bit of a low-impact and low-risk exercise. Not because the chairs aren't important, and not because investment is low. I'm sure it wasn't. But because we wondered how necessary it was to enroll families in this elaborate exercise. Surely comfortable bedside chairs already exist. And if not, a good product designer would be able to do a bit of research about this user group and figure it out. Now certainly product testing and feedback should be part of product development. But is a full co-production exercise one that includes visiting the factory, is that required to produce the desired outcome of having appropriate chairs? Listening back to our interview, this question came up and we kept circling around it, but we didn't really ever get to an answer. I think what we can glean from this, though, is that the very question of asking whether family engagement is necessary, either overall or for a particular project, 
didn't seem to be part of evaluation. And I'm not saying that it necessarily should be here. It just might explain why this sort of reflection didn't come up. We could also consider that this chair design exercise had more than one goal. Designing a suitable chair is one goal for sure, and maybe simply including families in designing something is another. And if so, well then, mission accomplished. So let's switch gears. Think about the broader context in which family leaders are invited to participate in decision-making. Key factors for Amun include scope, which we mentioned earlier, and whether there's political will internally to make the recommended changes. What is within the authority and influence of this hospital community to actually change? So when and if my favorite family leader who will say this at every meeting says, we need a provincial electronic health record, there might be, there might be, right, advocacy that Hallenberg can do from an organizational level in the context of bigger systems conversations to push that, because we do want that, sure. But I would color that outside of the sandbox for the most part, right? So what do we have the authority and influence to control as a hospital community? That, that I think is the scope you're talking about. Now, I think a different question and the real money question is, what do we have the political will to change? And I think that's the zone where we try to work in the most. What's the ambitious layer and level we can work at so long as it's in, within our control? So I hear your point earlier. Um, how we priority set our kind of uh, you know, family partnership projects is a couple things. And there is a low-hanging fruit. When Amun told the story of the bedside chairs, I used the term low-hanging fruit to suggest it was easy pickings, to indicate that I thought it wasn't exactly a controversial project. Here, Amun's using the term again, partly to tease me, and to acknowledge that some priorities are brought to the committee already having been pre-selected by hospital leadership or clinicians. The committee is given a list of the things the hospital already knows it needs to do. But that's just the starting point. As Amun explains, the committee can also add to it. You can work on these or, and here's the important part I think that differentiates more ambitious partnership from what typically happens, or you can identify a pain point that exists that's not on this list and let's talk about how feasible it is together. And then let's take it on because the right people to make the decisions are in the room. The CEO's in the room, board members are in the room, family leaders are in the room, clients and families who have active care experiences are in the room. And an example of that, so I'll give you an example of the An example of an ambitious initiative that came from the Family Advisory Committee was the proposal to expand clinic hours to weekends and evenings. In one of these priority setting exercises, a family leader brought up the point that people can access other services like banking during non-work hours and caregivers shouldn't have to take time off work or pull other kids out of school to attend therapy at Holland Bloorview. So they listened and they decided that this was worth pursuing. Makes sense. Now, is that revolutionary? I wouldn't say it's revolutionary. I would definitely say it wasn't on our radar going into that conversation. No staff were entering that room thinking, we're going to totally change our clinic hours. We were going in the room thinking, let's get new bedside sleeper beds for our inpatient units. But that's what we identified. That's what was voted on. So that's real direction setting and priority setting. The majority of families in the room said, forget all the other stuff you brought. That's a priority. We need evening hours. There's no argument from us that this process clearly empowers those who are assembled to have influence over what gets decided. This raised a few more questions, though. Emily, you picked up on something interesting here. I asked about the gap between the committee saying, this is what we want, and the hospital saying, okay, let's do it. 
How do they actually validate this is a real need for the wider community? So let's think of that as like the creative incubator, right? Like that's our family advisory committee is where we're inviting new priorities to be set by families like that one. And we're also sharing with families other priorities that are kind of floating around the hospital and we're asking them to priority set and direct us for the year. The step in between is the vetting. So it's not quite evaluation of the engagement process, but it's data becomes very important still for us. So we have, there's a reason why the family leadership program, right, that engine for engagement and all its staff, all the priority setting we're talking about, and client family relations or patient relations live inside the same program here. Because that's a really important link. So when someone says we got to overhaul our clinic hours, we're going to the data. That community, that space, that family advisory committee space, that's the design space. But if we're going to throw our weight behind why we're choosing that topic, it's not just the 10 people in the room, it's also the data. It's the surveys, it's um, our experience scores, it's our patient relations process and the compliments, but more importantly, often the, co the, the concerns or the complaints. And do they validate us spending a year throwing our weight as an organization and community behind this? So that, I mean, that's what we did in that example. And we saw the data validated. Emily, in this conversation, Access did we ever really get to the bottom of why they don't just start with the data? If the data is there to validate this, why wait for families to bring it up? We didn't circle back to this, but I think this is where the priority setting came in. I mean, they probably have a laundry list of a hundred things they want to do, and somewhere along the line, someone has to whittle it down and pick. Well, if the families help do it, there's probably less questioning about it later. I think it's one of the reasons why this kind of co-design work is so popular. You can always look back and say, well, we made the decision together, or patients helped make the decision, even if it was just the committee deciding and not, say, a community vote. Yeah, interesting. Another question arising from this part of the conversation related to Amun's comment about the 10 people in the room. This was in reference to the family advisory committee. The number may not actually be 10. But anyway... We were wondering how to think about the influence these particular people have. They've self-selected to serve on this committee, which means they're not nominated or elected or hand-picked for some reason, and they may or may not have specific interests or skills. And they may individually have their own ideas about what they're there to represent. So I guess the question is, on what basis do they get to have such influence and on whose behalf? There's so much, there becomes so much focus on the outcome impact, like the back end, right? That we're not even talking about like representation, like which is evaluation. Like we should be evaluating who is in the room and who's omitted because it's not accessible to participate in engagement structures, processes, relationships, because we're so eager often for folks who are interested in this work to jump to the value for money side. But we're not actually thinking about Yes, the 10 people built something really cool, but who are the 10 people and do they match the demographics of who should be in the room? So I think you're right. I, I think it's, it's a part of the same conversation and an important piece because it is evaluation. So I'm not proud of the fact that... For Amun, who is at the table is critical to the evaluation discussion because it's a marker of some kind. It's an indicator of whether they're doing something right. And this brings us back to the point we keep returning to, which is that the way successful engagement is defined seems to hinge not on outcomes, but on process and the experience of engagement for those involved. Now, I keep finding it strange that all these engagement practices get put into place without having a clear eye on 
what a good outcome is supposed to look like. But I'm starting to realize that my own expectations aren't quite aligned with what's happening here. What we're seeing time and again is that the underlying belief is that engagement must happen. And it must be seen as fair and accessible, validating and representative. If these things are in place or are, you know, constantly being worked on, then whatever outcomes happen, those must be the right ones. Back to Amun's point. Although we haven't yet defined what sort of representation they're after, whatever that is, they want more families involved. And it matters very much how accessible and desirable the engagement opportunities are. Holland Blurview draws patients from a very wide catchment area, not just affluent Leaside where they're located. And we wondered just how big the pool of potential family leaders really is, given the diverse needs and experiences of their clients and families. And I think there's going to be, rightfully so, populations who don't feel safe inside of a hospital space or to enter into some kind of engagement relationship with Holland Bloorview because they're thinking, well, why? I don't trust you as an organization um, to receive care, let alone like design something with you for the next year. So sure, I think that's, I think that's true. But I don't think that could be a, I don't want that to become a cop out for why we're not doing the work. So we have The also- work Aman is referring to is the work of attracting more people into the family leadership program and figuring out why some families either can't or won't be involved. Push-pull. I think we need to push ourselves into communities and listen better and listen more deeply and actually physically go into communities with no other ulterior motive is to um, kind of talk to folks about what would it take to make family partnerships something that they believe in. And I think we need to put more, um, I think we need to think deeply about accommodations and how to make it more accessible physically here, right? So that, that's where I'm going with like the compensation, uh, food, childcare, easy practices that we do anyways in other parts of healthcare that we don't often think about or don't always think about in regards to family partnership. Amun is now talking about outreach, but recruitment into family partnership is just one vector that Amun would like to see enriched. The other vector is addressing clinical health equity. I think it's okay for a goal to be how do we make family partnership as democratized and accessible as possible. And I think it's okay for a different goal, without these necessarily intersecting, to be clinical health equity. How do we get clinical services to people who need them? And what does that kind of accessibility look like without us expecting or even wanting them to become family leaders? This is an interesting distinction. At Holland Blurview, family partnership is the space where new ideas are proposed, where projects get taken up and priorities are set. And clinical health equity which is addressed by the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Office, is concerned with understanding and addressing barriers to accessing services. And the two areas often work together. Ideas generated by the committee might require validation through data. And data generated by the Equity Office might require some kind of action that can be taken up by the committee. This distinction is important because I think both of us were wondering... Where's this other work of outreach, health equity, accessibility, and how do they validate their projects and priorities as set by the committee? We talked a lot about health equity in this conversation and some of the issues facing Holland Bloorview's clients and families, including social determinants of health and structural and environmental barriers that would prevent them from accessing services. Amun gave examples of projects out of their equity, diversity, and inclusion office including for brain injury support and autism diagnosis. They did mapping of our 
in-house kind of like social demographics who's using our services. They mapped that onto our city's demographics and said, where are their massive gaps? Like, who, who are we not seeing? And they could actually like, almost like with a heat map, present where are those swaths of geography and the populations that live within them that Holland Bloorview is not serving, even though we should be. And their primary interest right now is figuring out how to make these, like figuring out why that's the case, number one, and if there's anything we can do as a hospital to make some of these services more accessible, including bringing them into communities. Now, with families so embedded and programs so intertwined, it can be a difficult exercise trying to extract specific elements for examination. So talk of representation and diversity can feel a bit abstract or theoretical. Part of that is because we didn't hear a clear definition of goals for representation or diversity. Like, are we talking about gender, race, income, level of disability, age? Well, at points, it sounded like all of it was fair game and all of it was relevant. But just keeping the question alive and dynamic was maybe a goal in and of itself. And that's not a criticism necessarily, it's more an observation of how slippery it can feel. Maybe once you pin it down, you're already missing something. While Amun isn't exactly specific, he does have a frame through which he sees representation. And it's one of perpetual learning and improvement and inclusiveness. For me, it's a matter of, I'm not looking for the representative. I don't think an organization should be looking for the representative, and you're right, that's like, a, that's like another layer of like almost good intention tokenism in and of itself. You're looking for a perspective that comes from the spectrum of perspective that that community represents. Like you're not here to like speak through some sort of like monolith of here's brain injury in a nutshell and now reflect that in the minutes. It's here's my kind of journey and experience with brain injury and my feedback is coming from my slice of that experience. I'd say the same thing probably applies to the to broader diversity. It gets very tempting to alleviate ourselves from the responsibility of consciously recruiting for and being mindful of the diversity of family leaders because we know that it'll never be exhaustive and because there'll never be a consensus. A few times in our conversation, Amon acknowledged that things are imperfect or perhaps inconclusive, but it's important to not let that get in the way. Because like many engagement practitioners and patient partners, Amon believes in the fundamental rightness of engagement. And Emily, I don't know if you've encountered this before, but there's something about this evaluation discussion for people who are really and truly enthusiastic about engagement that they find kind of irritating. And I've seen this mostly with patient partners in particular, that questions of measurement can produce a bit of eye rolling and a bit of, aren't we past this yet? I think where this comes from is that lack of evidence is seen as a cop-out or a bad excuse to not invest in it. Many arguments to justify engagement don't easily lend themselves to evaluation of outcomes and impact. I used to hate, I used to like really overcompensate and hate and push back against conversations about evaluation of, of patient engagement. And I think a part of my, I don't know, maybe even resentment, that might be too strong, but I'll use it. A part of my resentment or at least hesitation, I think is a common feeling still. And then this is like not scientific, but, <laughs> at all but I think so many of us have just seen it work and because we our only experience of doing the work as a family leader or like a staff partner or whatever is you've seen it work it's like well I don't need to evaluate it like we don't need to know in greater scientific terms the degree to which it works or 
you know, what percentage of people say it works and all this stuff because we know it has. Evaluation is suggesting that this doesn't work and is not important and de-emphasizing evaluation is a way to push against that. And I'm not saying it's right because I've evolved even myself from that, but I think, I think that's a huge thing, right? Like a part of the resistance um, or frustration with some of the evaluation conversation. Mm -hmm. Amon realizes that to satisfy a lot of diverse interests, you do have to evaluate how things are going. So here's where he's netted out. Yeah, yeah. we need to evaluate in all those domains we talked about, the process, the experience of those involved, the outcomes, to understand, okay, everyone's out, everyone here is saying it's working and putting up posters and, and talking about engagement. Now, what are the, the designated kind of factors, enablers, like what are the things that our evaluation is telling us, or is actually telling us makes it work? Because everyone out here is telling us it works. So I think that's another helpful way to explain the necessity of why evaluation is important. Hey, Emily. Hi, Jen. We pretty much debriefed as we went. Uh, so what are your key takeaways from the conversation? I guess what stands out for me is that Amun is working within a specific context where engagement is assumed to be the right thing to do. So his task is to kind of reverse engineer the justification. When he said that evaluation is a way to look back to see what makes it work, it's like they embarked on this journey that didn't really have a destination other than to involve families. And now that there's interest in quantifying the value, some of the tools and frameworks can be deployed to explain how certain actions or conditions led to other actions or conditions. And I don't know, it still feels a bit vague. There's this sense that it's all supposed to just sort of explain itself. Yeah, I agree. It felt like we concluded our conversation on a really satisfying note. But listening back now to Amun saying, we just know it works, I still find myself asking, what is it and what is works? Because of all the goodwill that these programs generate, it almost feels impolite to still be confused. Anyway, let's leave it here for now. Maybe at some point we can reconnect with Amun and carry on with some of this discussion. Much appreciation to Amun Siam and Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital for giving us an in-depth look into their client and family engagement programs. If you have any suggestions or comments, please get in touch through our website at mattersofengagement.com. This episode was written and produced by Jennifer Johannesson and Emily Nicholas Engel, with generous financial contribution from the Ontario Sports Support Unit, or OSU, which is jointly funded by the Government of Ontario and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, or CIHR. The views and opinions expressed in this episode belong solely to the producers or their guests and are not to be considered endorsed by OSU, the Government of Ontario, or CIHR. <laughs>